Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Two Drunk Fans. Gab is out this weekend because she has been on the work trip from hell. So we have a special guest on the podcast today. It's Anne O'Dong. Hi, Anne. Hi, Steph. And you know what? It's only fair that an Australian takes over from somebody from Portland. Oh, I thought you were saying it's only fair an Australian takes over for an American because of what you guys just did to us. <laughs> True, I could have gone there, but I think it's hashtag too soon. Yeah, I don't know. It's been coming for a while. And why don't you introduce yourself? Where do you write about women's soccer? Well, I write about women's football oh, um, all around. <laughs> I just had to go there. Um, I write about women's football on the women's game, which I founded nine years ago. And now we're lucky to have a pretty big team of about 17 people who cover the game in Australia and looking at Asia and also internationally. So I've been doing that for about nine years, but I also write for various outlets, including The World Game, which is an Australian outlet, Fox Sports, uh, done some stuff with BBC. So I'm pretty much just trying to get the word out as much as possible wherever I can for anybody who's happy to have my byline on some words. And what are you drinking? All right, so this is controversial because it is mm, in the middle of the day in Australian. So I am drinking some Don't Charge Moscato. Oh, but it's Sunday, right? It is Sunday, but it's like the middle of the day. It's still Sunday. Who fucking cares? You can drink from midnight, like Friday until midnight Sunday. We can swear on this, can't we? Oh, you can swear all you want. Be as Australian as you want. Okay, not as Australian as you want, because, you know, there are some words in Australia that are a little bit too liberal with, so. Okay, yeah, we we won't have any um, see you next Tuesday going on, but (laughs) but yeah, um, really glad you could come on the show. Anne has done this on short notice for us, but she's all ready to talk about the Euros. Euros, Anne, how about that, well, was it a shock ending to you? Uh, it was kind of a shock ending in, I think, the country that I thought would win the Euros. I actually thought it would probably end up being um, possibly England winning the Euros. I just thought they would be really, really stable throughout the tournament and do an England thing and just go through and and win in terms of just, you know, consistency and not really um, – opening up their game too much and they kind of almost did except they just made a red hot Netherlands and the Netherlands pretty much throughout the tournament were really consistent and were the best attacking side and in the semi-final against England you saw that and even in the final against Denmark you know defending really wasn't a thing that they were going to do in that final and I thought it made it one of the best matches of the whole tournament so I was so happy that the Dutch won, won on home soil, got absolutely fantastic support from their nation and they played some really good, exciting attacking football, which is kind of what you want your champions to be doing. I thought it was really good for the game as a whole. I agree with you, it was good. They won on home soil. Um, They did a great job. It looked like to me all the way from over here, uh, managing the tournament overall, it looked like, you know, there was pretty good turnout definitely for their games at least, and then the national celebration after they won, weren't something like 15,000 people lined up to watch their boat go to their final stage and then they had that huge party? It was fabulous. And it wasn't just 
that the country embraced them, which I thought was fantastic. I thought they embraced them as players and were really talking about their attributes as players and what they were doing on the pitch, not just, oh, yeah, these are our girls and that they've won a tournament. I thought the conversation around the Euros this year was really interesting in terms of tactics and um, there was a there was a tweet from Ariane Hinks, who's um, a multiple European champion, which we should talk about. But it was really good to see that a lot of these players and a lot of these countries back home they were actually being embraced we also saw Austria the Austrians go home and had a massive reception in Vienna the Danes went home and had two massive receptions um and so it wasn't just the Belgians also got a really good reception from their country so it was really nice that it was almost a um and embracing of a lot of these national teams in non-traditional women's football countries. And, of course, we had the Icelandics who had amazing support. Something like 2% of their nation were at some of those games. Um, and that's that's what's been really cool about this tournament is that a couple of debutantes, the debutantes did really well, and their national teams were embraced back home. I mean, 2%, in the, we got to put that in perspective. That's one out of every 50 people. Right. So if you look on any given block in your neighborhood, at least one person went to the Euros. I mean, their their population is tiny, but that's still like, you know, it gets into the the national zeitgeist. So I think that's really awesome. I think the English got a decent reception in that the FA announced that they're going to bid for the next women's Euro in 2021. I think it's a very positive sign. It is, and particularly when the last time that they hosted it, I, I don't think people even knew it was on, um, to be brutally honest. Well, this time they'll not only go in as one of the competition favourites, you would think, in the next couple of um, years, particularly as they've got a pretty decent group of players, but I think the FA is really doing a lot of work locally uh, to build up the game, as we've got with the FAWSL, which is about to kick off in, in September. Uh, there's they're doing a lot of the really hard work that I think federations have to do. It, it's great that teams do well at the tournaments, but it's the year in, year out grind between those three years or two years of tournaments that I think the FAs really need to do. And they're not the only ones doing it. Spain are doing it, um, even though their national team really struggled during this tournament. But you're seeing the likes of Scotland starting to do it, Iceland are doing it, Austria are doing it, a whole bunch of nations. And I think the stronger that... Um, those federations are and investing consistently I think it's going to be the better for the game full stop no you're absolutely right you can't just invest around tournaments and then drop them for two years it it doesn't work like that it's it's like any sports that are all the same you put in the hard work in the off season and then it shows when the season actually starts you can't just come into camp and be like all right I'll work hard now and and we're seeing that with a lot of um, nations like for example the Dutch um, even though they won these Euros and hadn't really like they hadn't really done well at the 2015 Women's World Cup, although I thought they would be a dark horse in that tournament. Maybe it was just one tournament too early for this group of players, but the Dutch are actually doing really well at youth level. Um, and the under their under 19s are currently in the semi-finals of the under 19s championships, but they've done that through the under 17s as well. They've won tournaments there, so that's showing that. A lot of hard work is being done where it needs to be done, which is at youth level, which is recruiting players, doing the hard developmental work and also doing the work of building together a league because a lot of these Dutch players played 
uh, in the Netherlands. And you're seeing that also with the likes of Spain. They're doing really well in their youth teams as well and starting to come through. And France in the past were exactly the same. So you you can't just do it at national team level. It's just not enough. It's not going to come through and it's not going to be sustainable. No, the youth game is a huge part of it. Um, Sticking with the senior team for the moment, that England-Netherlands semifinal, I mean, I do want to talk about that a little bit because you and I both had England pegged as maybe a, a strong contender for the final. Um, I think everybody had France, Germany, and then maybe England would be in it. But Netherlands ended up winning that 3 to nothing. England looked like they really didn't have many ideas either. I was not that shocked because before that, even though they were doing well, their main ideas seemed to be Jody Taylor. And it didn't not help. a bad idea, by the way. No, not a bad idea. And it didn't help that Jill Scott was out for this game, I think, on a card, which was dumb uh, in knockout rounds. But, you know, what was your opinion of, of that semifinal between the Netherlands and England? I always thought the Netherlands were going to win that one. Um, and I did say that on Twitter. I did have a little All bit right. of pushback. All right. Support, which, you know, I totally understand. But it just looked like for... Me, the Netherlands throughout the tournament had a lot of outlets. And not only that, they were playing the ball really, really quickly, which England hadn't seen. Um, France tried to do that, but they just didn't have the pace out wide, which is where um, the Netherlands were able to get England. And they also struggled to um, break down that English defensive block fast enough. And the Netherlands had shown in the games that they'd played against Denmark, against um, Sweden, that they definitely had the players to be able to do that. I think the thing for England now is that they've spent three years playing pretty conservative defence-first football. And in the preview, my question mark was whether they would be able to actually not be as reactive as they've they've been in the past. And against top sides, they'd struggled to score more than one goal. They hadn't been smashed in any way, shape or form, um, but they'd really struggled to be able to be creative and score enough goals. And I think that now is going to be the next evolution of England is are they going to be able to do that? Are they going to be able to um, find a game plan that is more offensive-minded? Because they absolutely have the players to be able to do that. But... I just felt like Samson was just too conservative. He was happy with the status quo and left it at that. And the Netherlands, they went out and they wanted to win the game. And they did that in the final as well. They they went out to win the game even when you were like, you know what, guys, maybe slow it a touch and try defending for a while. But they were like, hell no. Nah. <laughs> the first thing, I agree with you, England looked way too risk averse. And I think I said it to you at the time. Um, that's where it looked like a player like Rachel Daly would have been very useful as a sub. And it was kind of shocking to me, you know, that she was left off the team in the first place. But um, Mark Sampson made his pick very early. He seems like he knows which players he favors, whether that might be leading too much into favoritism. I don't know yet. <laughs> um, well, us, we'll ask any Luko. <laughs> and then second of all, Look, I hate to make it about the United States, but against, <laughs> you know, the Netherlands, with your whole thing, like, maybe you should stop and try to defend. They're like, no, 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 no. we're just going to keep the pressure up and keep the ball, you know, win the ball high up on the field. A team like the United States right now, do they, would they be able to punish the Netherlands for that? Or was it just like, 
you know, regardless of maybe the defending's not the most solid because the midfield and the forwards were just so, uh, you know, creative and together and on it that they, they they could beat anybody with that that arrangement. Maybe could could Australia have broken them down? Let's go with that. Let's let's do that instead. Not the United States, Australia. Well, it's interesting you say that because they played one another at the Algarve Cup earlier this year and I was watching that game and Australia smashed them for the first 60 minutes. Um, and I think it was 3-0 up, Australia were, and comp- and they were on top. And this was pretty much the same team. I think the only person that wasn't playing was Stephanie de Graz, who was um, swapped out, who Mandy Vandenberg was playing at central defender head of. And, uh, oh, yeah, Sari Vandenveel was not the preferred number one at that time. It was still Lowe's Gertz. And that was um, an interesting game to watch because both teams play a very similar system, except what Australia were able to do, and we'll talk Tournament of Nations a little bit later on, that high press meant that the ball carrier for the Netherlands really found it hard to be able to pick out the passes that they wanted to. And even the likes of Jackie Gronin and Lika Martins, who, to be honest, when I watched her in that game, I wasn't very impressed because she just couldn't find any space or time to be able to do what she does so well on the ball. And I think that's the difference is, um, and we'll see it when we talk tournament of nations, is can you pressure that ball carrier enough to put them off their stride and some teams did but they couldn't do it for long enough to be able to get out um of the dutch um rhythm of play in the end okay so the australia that just beat the united states plays the netherlands that just won the euros like right now who wins who wins i don't know that's a good game that's a really good game i think it's there's a lot of goals in that game Mm mm-hmm yeah Okay. So for Um, you, who's your player of the tournament? My player of the tournament, uh, Jackie Gronin, who uh, was the Dutch number eight slash number 10. Um, She was fantastic. She was basically the player that all of the play came to. She was a box-to-box midfielder. She was the link-up a number of times. She was that release ball out to either Lika Martins or Shanice van der Sanden out on the wings. Or she actually played that little nice ball into um, Vivian Medima. Vivian Medima, sorry about that. uh, oftentimes, and I thought she was just the player that pulled all the strings, but she was allowed to do that because she had, had some really good um, midfield support in Sherida Spitzer and also Daniela van der Donks. So I, I thought all up the reason why they won this match was because their midfield was able to pretty much take control and strangle every other midfield in the tournament. Hmm. I liked Gronin. She's young though, right? How old is Gronin? She's... Yeah, she's she's pretty young and she's been playing in Germany and it's interesting that she's been playing for Frankfurt who struggled last season um, in the Bundesliga and I think she's a player that's probably going to turn around and a lot more people are going to come for her. Only a 22-year-old. Yeah, and 22. She's, she's just, I think she's played less than 20 or 30 caps for the Dutch. So... She's a player that has got a lot of growth still in her, but she was so mature in the middle of the park for the Dutch. Yeah, Wiki says 25 appearances for the Netherlands so far, although obviously she's been playing there in the club. 25, yeah. She's been playing the club yeah. scene for a while. But um, 
yeah, Gab was saying whenever tournaments like the Euros come on, she bets that NWSL coaches just watch this with like a little shopping list. You know, I I think there were a lot of players. I mean, that's how Nadia Nadim, I think, ended up in NWSL. It was maybe last Euros even. She took that great penalty kick where she had all that yeah. attitude and she pointed exactly where she wanted it. And, you know, she the the style of her play as an attacker, I think it really brought her to the attention of maybe some uh, NWSL people, eyeballs that previously wouldn't have paid that much attention to her. So I, I... I mean, I think a lot of Euro... I think there are a lot of teams in NWSL who European players would work really well with. I think the likes of... Um, the way, even though they got smashed the last couple of games, but the way Sky Blue um, FC play that really uh, that really close tight passing game would work well with some of those European players. FC Casey, I think they should be looking at some of those Euro um, players to add to their midfield um, and give them just that little bit of creative spark and even. Um, well, Laura Harvey has done it plenty of times um, going to Europe with those kind of players. And I think if you have a look at those three teams in particular, I think they could they could get a gain a lot of benefit for some of the players that really starred um, during the tournament. But then again, with Europe, it's also the question of money. Right. If you're that class of player, then mm-hmm. what's to say you can't get much better money at a French or German club? Or comparable money that doesn't require you to go to a country where you have to, you know, most of the people aren't going to know your language or a second language that you're familiar with because don't all Europeans speak at least two languages? I feel like. Yeah, they're, they're a little bit better than us Australians and Americans. Yeah. Um, but like Lika Martins has gone to Barcelona and she's on something like 200,000 euros a year. I think they said that was for her three-year contract, that figure that we saw in the news. Yeah, it was spread over a three-year contract. But it's still, even if 200,000 euros, which is what, like one million American dollars? (laughs) It's more like (laughs) probably like 250, 275 American. Uh, Even if that's spread over three three years, that's 60-some euros a year. That's so far past the NWSL maximum, and we don't have a designated player rule, so... You know, she's making twice what even a top-level undersell player is making with that contract at Bartha. And she's got FC Barcelona resources behind her. We can, the best we can offer would be like an MLS side. I don't think it's comparable. Well, I mean, you could always just hope that um, this Barca team goes through NWSL and so that Lika can uh, be loaned to that team and then <laughs> you get to see her in the NWSL. That would be interesting. So let's uh, switch over to Tournament of Nations. You can talk about your beloved Matildas for a hot minute. Girl, you know it's going to be longer than a minute. I know. Clear name, the of, name of your sex tape. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Tournament of Nations, not great for the United States, yeah. although they, they ended on a high note, but amazing for Australia. I think they really declared themselves as like, okay, guys, we're not fucking around anymore. We are poised to be a world power in women's football. And if you don't take notice of us now, it's to your detriment later because in 2019, we're coming for you. Well, from the trophy lift, I'm not too sure if that's what they're declaring because that looked like there was a lot of, I'm not too sure what to do with this thing and should we be happy about this? And lots of photos of like just confused Matildas with the trophy. So maybe we need to practice that one a little bit more, but 
Look, overall, I think the tournament was a really good confidence boost for the team. Um, I mean, they would say that they've had a lot of confidence for a while, um, going back to probably the 2015 Women's World Cup and their performance against America there, even though they got the lo- they were lost. Um, but and of course, our federation put out that fabulous article about how well, how much we smashed you guys, even though we lost. Um, <laughs> I remember that. That was hilarious. Oh, still, I was, I saw that article and I was like, oh my God, can we not? Um, but I think with the Tournament of Nations, they got a lot of confidence out of it because they actually got victories and successive victories. And they've been talking a lot about building consistency and being able to play over five, six, seven games that you need to win a tournament. And that's what they got out of it. But I also think that they're not going overboard. I mean, they've got Asian Cup next year in 2018 and then the Women's World Cup in 2019 and 2020. But the good thing is that this core group of players have now been together for three years now. I saw a video the other day where they were all talking about their debuts and Sam Kerr's like, uh, I think I was like just out of nappies. <laughs> and and Alana Kennedy was, uh, might have been 2012. She didn't say how old she was, but she was like 16. And then Caitlin Ford was like, oh, might have been just before the 2011 World Cup. And then again, didn't say how old she was. And she was like 15, 16. Um, but they're all now starting to put, three years together they're all in their early 20s 20 pretty much 21 through to 24 at the moment the core group and so come the world cup I think that's when they're going to be prepared and they're kind of putting the game plan together um it's pretty exciting but I'm also very cautious as somebody who's supported the French national team for a while I'm super cautious (laughs) Man, France. Oh, we didn't really talk about France from the Euros. Do you even want to talk about them? Or do you just want to forget that that ever happened? Look, I just want to say farewell to our sweet prince, Camille Abili. Oh, my God. I know. Um, Yeah, that was... She didn't deserve that. That was heartbreaking. Camille Abili has been such a faithful servant of the French national team, and she served them so well. She didn't deserve to go out like a punk. She didn't deserve to go out like that. She kept them in the tournament with that free kick because she was like, I'm not going out like this in a group stage. And then she went out in the quarterfinal. But, um, yeah, so watching France, I'm, I was watching a lot of the news media in Australia and they were, like, basically like, we're going to win the 2019 World Cup. I'm like, guys, All right, guys. need to, like, back up, back right up. Yeah, I think people who watched Australia in 2015 were like, all right, these are clearly, this is clearly a team that in one cycle, if they stay on this development path, they're going to be serious contenders. Like they, it's not like they were pushovers in 2015, but they definitely seemed about one cycle away. So now we're in the middle of that cycle and they look like they're, they're definitely on the right path. So, I mean, even though you're like, all right, let's be careful, but still in 2019, I think this Depending on how they perform in the Asian Cup, that's your World Cup qualifiers, right? AFC Cup? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So depending on how they perform there, if they turn in a good performance, I think they're going to go into 2019 with a lot of expectations on them. I don't necessarily know that Australia has entered a major tournament with that kind of expectation on them before. 
Do you think that's going to be good or bad or neutral or what? Well, yeah, I think it depends on how Sajic keeps that group together. I think um, one of the best things about a lot of these players overseas is they're playing in teams where there are expectations. I mean, you've got Hayley Razzo and Ash Sykes playing at Portland and there's definitely pressure there. You've got Sam Kerr leading Sky Blue FC and there's a whole heap of pressure on that as well. You've got players like um, Ari and Caitlin Ford in Japan and they're leading their teams there as well. So I think it's good that a lot of these players are starting to put themselves in situations where they have got pressure, are carrying, um, and they're bringing that back and those standards back into camp. Um, Stajic said before this tournament that this is the most mature he's seen the group come into camp. I mean, you know, the Australian stereotype is happy-go-lucky and this group really is happy-go-lucky. I mean, they're a, they're a gift factory a lot, a lot of the time. Um and I think it's just going to be managing all of that uh, expectation and making sure it doesn't, one, either get to their head or get too, they get too far ahead of themselves. All in all, it's a good group. It's a really, really good group that's starting to build a lot of depth. I mean, considering that Kai Simon and Michelle Heyman were still out of that Tournament of Nations squad and Ash Sykes is still not putting a hand up for the national team. I mean, those are three strikers that, add to the Matilda's equation. For me at the moment, the key thing that they need to sort out is their defence. We need to sort out who the centre-back pairing is. I mean, you guys have got the same experimentation going on at the moment with the defence. And I think once you sort that out, um, Australia will look pretty solid all across the board. The United States defence, we're... Uh, maybe last year I would have been like center back will probably be fine. We just need to find Becky Sauerbrunn a partner. But this has been a weird season for Becky Sauerbrunn at, at FC Casey, and then for the national team I, this year she's really shown her like mortality. I think she's made some mistakes. Sam Kerr really shook her when FC Casey played Sky Blue. I wonder if that's a a result of a lot of shakeup. I mean. That's one of the issues I had pre-tournament was that Alana Kennedy has been basically the rock, much like Becky Sauerbrunn has for the last two years at centre-back. But if you're shifting, if you're making a lot of moving pieces around those players, maybe they also get shook up in relation to what am I supposed to do in any particular situation? Um, where am I supposed to be? And what am I supposed to cover? And what is my centre-back partner going to cover? Yeah, I, I want to see. every player has that. I want to see Becky, you know, uh, next year during World Cup qualification. It could just be a slump or a weird period. No player can stay at the peak, you know, forever. Every player has, has, has weird spots where they're just not quite at 100. And you're right. There's been a lot of experimentation around her. So she's had to be the one like the constant that you experiment around and even then Jill was like all right I'm gonna put you at DM for one game so I I would expect her to not yeah, be totally that, Jill? <sighs> god we'll get to that in a second um <laughs> but at the same time I do kind of want a slightly deeper center back pool I don't think we have an especially deep one at the moment and I don't think we're deep on fullbacks either I know Casey's short I think she's a good luck at left back for us, right back, I 
a couple weeks ago would have been like, oh, I don't know. But I think Taylor Smith earned herself more opportunity through the Tournament of Nations. But at the same time, can you tell me who's directly in line behind either one of those? I mean, Kelly O'Hara, yes, but she's not, she's basically the person who fills in at fullback wherever she needs to go, because Jill Ellis will switch her between right and left as needed. It's funny you say that, because there are a lot of parallels with what's going on with Australia as well. I mean, until Ali Carpenter kind of stepped up in the last little while and has taken control of the right back position, we were playing Caitlin Ford at right back or Caitlin Ford at right wing, depending on what we wanted. At the 2015 World Cup, we played Caitlin Ford at, you know, left full back and Behind her, there wasn't really much, and we'd played Hayley Brazzo, which, um, you know, Jill Ellis was trying to, well, apparently was floated that she was going to try Sophia Huerta at, <laughs> at right back as well. So that was kind of very much what Australia has done with um, a, a couple of players. So, But even behind that, there's not that much depth. And I think, to be honest, I think that's a world football problem at the moment. Defenders like true defenders are such a rarity at the moment and and a lot of coaches are converting players either forward players into defensive attacking fullback players um or they're just hoping and that they're going to lack into good defenders i think that's just a Problem. Well, okay, here's a possible theory then, because women's soccer is relatively young, right? So for, yeah. I would say, up until the late 90s, early aughts, maybe even all the way up to 2008, you could get away with athletic converted defenders who didn't specialize in the position, right? So uh, at the highest levels, you know, you, you didn't necessarily have to have people who had really studied the art of defending. And now it's catching up to us where basically, you know, thinking defenders like Becky Sauerbrunn are are only now starting to crop up after their development through the mid-aughts until now. Does that sound like a plausible theory? I actually think it's the other way around, to be honest. I feel like um, in the early days of um, women's football, everything was so specialized. You were a number nine and you were a big, strong centre forward. You know, you were a wing player or you were a a midfielder. Um, And then the defenders were defenders. Like that's that's all that was expected of them. You know, you went in doubt, hoof it out, um, those kind of defenders. And I feel like now the coaches are asking for much more of a skill set from their defenders. They're saying you being able to defend is not enough anymore. As a fullback, you've got to be able to get up the park and support the attack as much as you've got to be able to defend. And I feel like an exhibit of this is, uh, and this might just raise a lot of ire, is Ali Krieger. You know, she was a very, very good defender, but suddenly she's saying that she's being told that's not enough. You've still got to be able to get up and support the attack. And that's why we saw a lot of forwards converted into defenders um, because the skill set now is asked to be so much more. You know, you can't just be a centre back. You've got to be a ball playing centre back who can restart the attack and, um, you know, play the ball into the midfield. You don't you can't just be a defensive midfielder anymore. You've got to be a defensive midfielder who can recycle the ball and um be a box to box 
I feel like there's just more asked of players while in the old days you were you were you were your set position and that was enough I think we actually said maybe the same thing but you oh, said it okay. <laughs> more you said it more eloquently and with better context so I'm just going to edit yours out and leave mine in and then cut <laughs> straight to you going yeah you're right I'll I'll like copy paste yeah, that from right, it thank you thanks Anne. Yes, wow right. okay good very eloquent I appreciate it Look, I I need this, Anne. Just let me have it, okay? <laughs> because let's talk about the Australia USA game. I'm emotionally I've been building up to that, and we'll just we'll dive right in. Australia beat the United States for the first time, one nothing. Um, <sighs> Can I just say my hex tweet worked from a couple of uh, months ago? I'm wow. gonna go with that. Oh wow! So it was like evil magic that you put on us that's great well you know um you know i put that evil on you like ricky bobby does that's what i tried (sighs) okay so i mean i didn't think the united states played horribly against australia but australia just played that well and the United States never really found a rhythm. I mean, what was the Australian diagnosis of the game? Because like you said, that match where we beat you, but then the Australian <laughs> Federation like put out all this positive press. It's always interesting to see how the other side views a result. Well, most of the result was, yay, we beat the USA, um, which was awesome. I'm not going to lie, like watching um, the mainstream media really get on board on the result was pretty cool. Didn't your prime um, minister and- say something about this shit? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, like full spectrum, like members of parliament, prime minister, opposition leader, um, like this bandwagon was so full. I thought it was going to tip over for a moment, mm-hmm. um, but it, it stayed on track and then it got fuller as we went through the rest of the games. My analysis on it was, we were pretty lucky and very, very happy to get out of that first 15, 20 minutes of pressure. Um, the last time we played the US, uh, again, there was that similar kind of pressure and that really end-to-end kind of football from both sides. And Megan Rapino broke that game open. And Shawmess did again in this one. Lydia Williams had to pull out a wrist save really early on to keep the scores locked. And I think if America had scored... Um, if Pino had scored then, um, I would have worried that there would have been the same rhythm uh, as in previous US-Australia games. But on this one, Australia held out and then slowly they started to play the game at their own tempo. I think what America struggled with is the press. Australia is one of the few teams in the world that actually does a full press. And it wasn't just America, Japan. I have... Never seen Japan lose the ball so much in a press situation. And I think that's what got to them in the end. And the other really exciting thing was when uh, all the fire and fury came out late in the game, Australia also held out still. Yeah, that Australia-Japan game was very interesting to watch because even though it was essentially a Japan B team, right, they brought a couple of veterans and they built around them with a lot of kids who were 23 and younger – Australia still dominated them. They Japan could not hold the ball for more than three or four passes, which, as we all know, is extremely the most un-Japan like thing that like if I saw a person, if my friend like their behavior had changed that suddenly, I'd be like, "Are you okay? Do you have the flu? Like, what's going on?" 
I think it was a good experience for the United States, though, to have someone who essentially was coming up to them and being like, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself over and over and over? Yeah, I, I think, though, one of the things that um, we can't say is that this was a Japan B team. This is a Japan rebuilding team. I think uh. this will probably eventually be their A team. Um and they're just starting to rebuild as a nation as we go into the new era. I mean, a lot of their servants are now well into their 30s. And I'm talking about, you know, the old school servants of the guys like um, Ando. And um, we haven't seen Ayamayama for Yonks, you know, um, Ono as well, um, Nagasato, um What's the name? Um, I'm trying to figure out. Uh, Shishima as well. All of these players are now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All of these players are now into their 30s. So the squad that um, that um, uh, they're trying to put together at the moment with um, the new coach coming in, in um, Takakura, she's, she's bringing a lot of her faithful servants from the under-17s and under-20s who have won World Cups and um, youth medals as well, playing really great football. She's trying to build them together, again, building towards 2019, getting a lot of games under these players really early on. And I think they've got some good players that are coming through in the mix as well. I thought um, Amy Nakajima looked really good. She's about 25 years old and she's probably going to be the new um, Miyama and and take over that kind of role in the midfield. And I thought also the other person that played really, really well was um, Mina Takana. Again, she's another player that's starting to come through is in her early 20s. And Yuka Momoki as well. She's coming through. She's probably, I think, 20. And all these kind of players have played with Takakura through the youth representative squads, and she's starting to bring them through. So I think... Um, it's not a Japan B, but it's a Japan that is starting to rebuild as they build towards 20, 20, uh, 2019 and have a whole group of players again in that 20, 23 to 26 age group that will hopefully do really well for them during the Olympics because, yeah, like I said, the veterans now, um, they're well into their uh, 30s and they just need to refresh the squad. I think what's also happened is, much like with Australia over the last couple of years, the generation that's coming through is so technically gifted, is so um, well-balanced and they are surpassing and, and developing much quicker than the generation previously. And that happens with any new nation that um, – builds a system and that system actually starts to bear fruit is the players behind the current generation who weren't who weren't uh, recipients of that system they develop at a much faster pace and it could also just be a case of Takakura wanting her players players that she's coached since they were you know under 13s and they are now coming through and she knows them and they know her and know exactly what she wants from them and so she's just trying to get those um, miles under their legs heading up to the World Cup in 2019. It could be just as simple as that, but they have got some pretty young players coming through. They've got a couple of 21-year-olds, a couple of 20-year-olds. Um, Yua Hasegawa, who, who won the Golden Ball, um, at, I think it was the 2014 um, Youth World Cup, 
these kind of players are now starting to come through and, and the defence in particular is very young. There's three 20-year-olds who came through in, in that tournament um, as well as a 22-year-old and a 23-year-old. So that is, I think that's what's happening with Japan at the moment. It's it's happening to a certain extent for the United States. I mean, look at all the, the new names that were hyping up for 2019 already. Mal Pugh, obviously, Rose Lavelle, Andy Sullivan. Um, all these are pretty young kids, although, you know, not as young as maybe Australia would have started them. But whatever. We couldn't all have Tom Sermani. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm dead. Uh, oh God! Yeah. Oh. So that was good. That was good. So I'm gonna ask you for your main takeaway from Tournament of Nations, and it can be for Australia, and then I'll talk about my main takeaway for the United States. So for you, what what for you is kind of um, the theme of the Matildas in the Tournament of Nations? I think for the theme for Australia is building, just keeping to keeping building depth, keeping building confidence. Uh, I think that's what they need to keep doing over the next two years. And they've definitely started to build a lot of the depth that they're going to need, and and building depth in positions and personnel. And I think that's that's the theme for Australia over the next little little while. And I think also the other thing for I'm going to give a takeaway for America as somebody who's just watched a lot of them over the last couple of years. I think the takeaway for me is patience. Um, when you are rebuilding a squad, it takes time. And I think it's a bit easier for somebody like Stajic to build a squad in Australia because we are not used to success or we're just learning to um have success and so we're prepared to wait out not great results and see that where the future plan is and I think that's what needs to happen with America is is a little bit of patience but I also think the one thing that um I'd like to see Jill Ellis do is actually lay out the plan Alan Stadges is a very tactical coach in Australia and one of the best things I love is that I can sit with him and ask him tactical and technical questions and it won't be swatted aside as if, hey, little girl, you're not going to understand all of this. And I think if you lay it out, people are more inclined to give you the patience and the time to to do what you need to do. That's interesting that you bring that up because uh, someone who writes on Stars and Stripes FC, Charles Olney, brought up a point that um, one of the criticisms of Jill Ellis is that she's very bad at explaining her plan. But it doesn't mean she doesn't have a plan. It just could mean she's mm-hmm. bad at press conferences. She does tend to ramble a bit and give general, like very general platitudes and be like, it's all about the process, experimentation. I just wanted to see this and this and this. But at the same time, which leads to my takeaway from the tournament, it's that while she did have this period of freedom to do fuck all, right? We're we're World Cup champions. We won't talk about what happened at the Olympics. Um, <laughs> you know, we're we're in that now. We're in that about two year gap before you have to ramp up again for the the next World Cup. She has license. She's earned herself some breathing room to just do whatever she wants. But I think it's a fair observation that even though she went around experimenting, she didn't do it in a coherent manner. 
at least not, mm-hmm. you know, from our perspective. And she didn't respond to her experiment's results in a coherent manner, right? If you perform a proper experiment and you get a result that says, um, all right, you didn't have enough of A and you had too much of B, the next go around, right? You should have more A and less B. But Jill Ellis in the next tournament would be like, I don't know, maybe I'll try C, D, and X. Who knows? We'll see. If you're going to talk about experimentation, I'm going to pull it out in the Australian context, is that when Statutus is experimented, he's kept a lot of variables constant. So constant variable, Lydia Williams in goal, Alana Kennedy at centre-back, a midfield three of Katrina Gorey, Emily Van Egmond um, and Elise Keller-Knight, and the attack has pretty much remained consistent between about six different players but playing the same style. Then the um, variable has been then, um, you know, the fullbacks. We've played different fullbacks. Or if he's trying out a player at the number 10 role, everything else is kept constant and then he puts in one or two variables. I think that's been Ellis's problem because then those multiple moving parts, as you said, those multiple variables that she's put into the equation. That's also entirely right about Ellis's experimentation because what have been the constants for the United States in this experimentation period? It'll be maybe Becky's, Be- Becky Sauerbrunn is center back, right? And then mm-hmm. it has been up until now, until recently, Carly Lloyd will be in the midfield, probably mm-hmm. with Allie Long. And then there's no other certainties really besides that, I feel yeah. like. That's a very terrifying, like, lack of control around which experimentation is going to happen. You're changing way too many variables. And as you know, the more variables there are in an equation, the harder it is to solve. She's just not very good at explaining it. I mean, one of the other, taking Australia out of the equation, look at the Netherlands with um, Serena Weigman. She, again, was another person who, the Dutch didn't have great results up until uh, the last month of preparation for the tournament. They were very up and down. But again, she had a lot of constants and only changed one or two variables. And she finally figured out what her best 11 was, what her best formation was, and what was going to work well. And I think the problem also um, in relation to uh, the U.S. has been, it's not only have there been personnel changes, there have been positional changes and there have been formation changes added to the mix. So the degree of difficulty in solving this equation goes up exponentially. The other thing that I don't necessarily give credence to the maybe she's just bad at press conference thing is, is that, so when I used to teach, it was, my philosophy was learn it, do it, teach it. Once you were able to learn it, do it yourself, and then successfully explain it to someone else, that demonstrated your mastery of the subject. And if Jill Ellis cannot explain it well enough to people for them to grab like a coherent idea of what she's doing, I think that's not necessarily the biggest mark, but a mark against her. That's you have to uh, maybe be able that's to just get frustration. Into the weeds. What? You have to be able to get into the weeds. I mean, the weeds? there are enough people around the weeds. Oh, deep the into weeds. the weeds. I thought right. you said weebs. Yeah. And do you know what weebs are? W e e b. No. It stands for weeaboo. <laughs> and it's usually a stand-in for Japanophiles, like anime fans who are very into, um, like, I think it's like otaku culture or something like that. I probably got that wrong. Like, and now the weebs are right going to come back. from me. What's happening, my brother? 
Is your brother a big anime fan? Does he have a body pillow with like a girl on it? Oh my god. Okay, I don't know what my brother has, but he is just finishing his Japanese um, uh, degree and he's just finishing computer animation degree. So, yeah. Oh my god. Sorry, rip to your brother because that's a tough industry. I think um, if you can't get into the weeds of it with people and there are enough really super intelligent football reporters and football writers who can actually if you sit down and have that conversation with them they might be able to explain it to you um the supporters a lot better but if they can't grasp what you're doing they can't coherently put it out to the public which is how a lot of the public distills the information and as we said earlier or you pointed out australia hasn't necessarily had that expectation of winning so you know the united states it's we we definitely have that pressure so that plays both ways because at the same time it's like, all right, we have to get used to being patient. But on the other hand, I think Jill Ellis actually said it. She's like, I understand the impatience because there are certain expectations. I never went into this thinking that people would, you know, give me time or whatever or give me the allowance to screw up. That's like a summary. She didn't actually put it that way. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does go both ways. But, you know, balanced against that patience is once again, like we can see with our special eyeballs that she just doesn't seem to be making good plans and then reacting to the actual results. She's just like hopping around from one idea to the next. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. And I think fans have a right to feel frustrated with that, but I guess we'll see heading into world cup qualifying and these last six friendlies. I don't know if you heard this. The United States already has two friendlies against New Zealand in September, two unannounced friendlies in October, and then two more against Canada in November. And then one in October, <laughs> the FIFA window is like two or three days after the NWSL final. <laughs> Do you wish Australia scheduled just, as many games for their yes! team? Yes! Yeah, oh okay. my god, yes! You're sitting there like, shut the fuck up! Are you kidding me? I'm like, oh my god, I would not, I would like cry for... Yeah. Actual, you know, we've got we've got two in September against Brazil. Uh-huh. That's pretty good. And then, and then probably crickets until next April. Yeah. Canada's even worse, God. Like they've really done yeah. themselves a disservice there. I have no idea whether or not scheduling ten thousand friendlies to put Christine Sinclair at least over the goal scoring record. Ugh. What a pr- like media coup that would be for them. Finally get one over on the Americans. <laughs> you know? But um, we, we shall not, we shall not uh, um, bring up the ghosts of 2012. Um, just going on. Uh, yeah, the United States had two mini tourneys on home soil. They had two away games in Europe. Um, we played Russia in a series of home friendlies, um, and now we're going to have six more games to close out the year. So I guess I should just shut up about. <laughs> you know an embarrassment of riches sorry moving on but if you guys you know i feel like that should be such a signal to the rest of the world like you can make money off of your women's team if you do what the united states does and you hype the team and you start getting results you can make some money and the other thing that annoys me about our federation not doing that is it actually is a hindrance to our team i mean not just a hindrance in terms of them getting together regularly and playing games, but also a hindrance in terms of 
say, for example, 2019. I mean, if all these nations are playing a whole bunch of World Cup qualifiers, picking up a ton of points, instead of Australia being, say, top five, which I think they are, um, you know, we blow out to number seven or eight and suddenly we're not seated at a World Cup, which helps your performances. So it's actually a real disservice to the national team um, if you're not playing as regularly and being able to pick up points and actually be in your true ranking position. Mm -hmm. Now that we've discussed the failures of national federations, we can move on to the club game for NWSL. Um, And discuss the failures of coaching? Of clubs? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a Breakers fan, so... Again, Uh, discuss the failures of... Sorry. Sorry, sorry, Breakers people. Don't come at me. It's been a weird week. We had some midweek games, so teams are tired. And this is Saturday night, Sunday mid-afternoon for you? I don't... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we still have two more NWSL games to go, but we'll just go in reverse order uh, because we had a lot of interesting results tonight. First up, Portland Thorns beat Chicago Red Stars 3-2. I was very interested in how Portland kind of came out of the gate. They racked up two right away. It was Razzo and Sinclair, wasn't it? Did you get to see the Haley Razzo goal? I did. And you know what's interesting is like um, I did a little thing the other day. I was trying to figure out how many times Razzo and Sinclair link up for goals, and it's actually quite frequent. So uh, if you want to do part two of your NWSL duos, I think Razzo and Sinclair might get a Guernsey in that one. Well, they link up often, but how often does it actually produce a final result? Look, <laughs> do you have to really need final results? I think we've just spoken about the fact that Soccer final is not results may of, or may not be required. It's not a game of scoring. It's not about who has most goals at the end. It's about who linked up for the most attempts. That's how you win yeah. at soccer. Huh. I was okay. shocked that Razzo and Sinclair both scored in this game so early. But then, of course, Chicago started putting it together. They came back um, with two goals, although Portland ultimately won the game. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this game, did you see the Tyler Lucy foul on Danny Colaprico? Oh, MG. Like, I think, I, I'm surprised Colaprico didn't, like, stop the game for whiplash. That's how far back her head went. Mm-hmm. And the ref, I think, was in good position to see it and just was like, play on. Maybe she caught it out of the corner of her eye. Didn't, But that's definitely going to the disciplinary committee. I would not be surprised yeah. if Lucy gets the same suspension that Merritt Mathias got uh, three games. And that's fair enough. I think you you do have to set a standard of what you're going to allow on the pitch and <laughs> hair pulling, yeah, no, not a thing. Hair pulling and I think it was a little more of an accident that she stepped on her after they got tangled, but it's still not great. And it's apparently bad enough that current report is Colaprico has to go to the hospital to get some x-rays because they think something might be broken in her arm oh yikes yeah i so i uh, yeah i wouldn't be surprised to call Prico's out for the next game even for me the big surprise is that um portland are such within striking distance of north carolina in um for the shield i mean i feel like portland has been way below par than they were last season and yet they're only two points away from shield yeah, yeah they're two points um, they're in second position? with 31 and then yeah NC with 33. And then NC's record is three wins, two losses in the last five. Portland is four wins, one draw in the last five. Yeah. So. I mean, I think 
with with all the injuries that they've had and and the national team shakeups with the Euros, I think they've done really well. And I'm gonna give an Aussie a toot here on, and I think Hayley Razzo has been one of the key players um, for keeping the consistency with the team, and um, of course um, Sink as well. Um, they've just been two of the more consistent players in their forward line when there's been lots of national team upheaval in and around and also injuries. I don't think Ali Long played this game. Spoken about Heath, um, Brynja's daughter, pretty much most of the season up until the Euros was injured. So they've done really well um, to keep uh, a pace with the, the leaders and I think they're pretty much close to cementing a final spot. That's interesting to me because, of course, Heath has been out the entire season but before then, I thought she was in some of the best form of her life. The yeah. last games that she played for Portland, she was clearly a game changer. So I'm just wondering what Portland would look like with Tobin Heath right now. Maybe they'd be far and away number one, or maybe it would have changed up the way that they reacted in the attack and they actually wouldn't, you know, be so far ahead. Who knows? But I think with Tobin Heath, they would definitely probably be number one right now. And the other problem for me is Chicago and their uh, – I mean, this is a team that I thought would be a lot more consistent than they are. Um, they've been pretty good, but the last couple of times, I think they've, they've picked up three draws in their last five, and those are a lot of drop points that they probably shouldn't have dropped. And I think they've got one of the stronger attacks in in the comp, um, and I mean, Kristen Press is in amazing form, and what a, and her duo, as you put it in the four four two article with Sophia Huerta, who scored again uh, this weekend. I think um, they're definitely a dangerous team, but I sometimes feel like their best and their worst are too far apart. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Consistency clearly matters, and they haven't been consistent enough, which is why they're now number three. Uh, Orlando Pride, Sky Blue FC. That is mm. the shock result to me of the weekend. Talk about best and worst being so far apart, these two. Sky Blue even got Sam Kerr back, even though I don't think she was 100%, but they might as well have not have had her. Like, I thought Allie Krieger controlled her pretty well when she did see the ball, and then when the rest of the time she just didn't have the ball. Like, Sky Blue couldn't couldn't pick her out and then on the other end orlando pride alex morgan and marta are on some other shit right now they they obviously had they knew each other and they played with each other before so i expected that they would not need nearly as much lead time to kind of integrate with each other but they really integrated in a hurry and so morgan had two on the night right marta had two on the night alex morgan had they they both assisted each other talk about dominating sky blue which i think a lot of people early on had pegged as a playoff contender and i'm not so sure anymore yeah and you know what truly like uh, particularly considering um <laughs> considering what they've done together in the past um this is definitely name a more iconic duo than marta and alex morgan um from their old flash days and to uh, to what they're doing now I think the key thing for me has been that um, Orlando has sorted out their midfield, um, particularly as you wondered last season who would get the ball to their forwards and they really struggled with that. I think this year they've actually sorted that out and um, they've sorted out it out in a um, – what's the word? It's a – 
I guess it's it's a different manner than I thought they would sort out what their midfield would look like, um, and it's do it's really really doing the job with Camilla in there and um, Alana Kennedy and also Danny Weatherholt, which has allowed Marta to pretty much play as a free ranging number ten, um, knowing she's got some great support in behind her, and of course, your girl Maddie. How are you feeling, Steph? I am not ashamed to admit that I cried a little bit tonight. <laughs> Um, I was actually, I don't really like lopsided results like this unless Boston's the one creating them by winning, not by losing. I got to be specific about that. Um, but once they were up, you know, four, I was like, okay, we'll definitely see Maddie come into the game. I I did think that Tom would put her in regardless of what the scoreline was like. He seems like the kind of guy who's like, you know, winning matters, but this is a game that you play with people and people matter too. Mm -hmm. So even if Orlando had been, if Orlando had been down a lot, maybe we wouldn't have seen her. And Maddie's the kind of person who would have understood, but you know, if the result was, was close enough or they looked okay, I thought she was going to go in regardless. And then when they hit four, I was like, okay, we'll see Maddie Evans. She'll get some decent time. Um, I thought it was nice of them to uh, give her that penalty kick. Uh, either Marta or Alex Morgan could have worked on a hat trick there. But once again, yes, it's about results, but it's a, it's a game you play with people and people matter. <clears throat> you know, and, and Maddie Evans has been one of the people, I think, who has helped the league matter to fans for a long time. This is her fifth season. She came in straight out of college in the draft. I have a picture of her from the end of the 2013 season, looking like a little baby, you know, after her first pro season. She's the kind of player you, you cannot have a league without. So it's just kind of mm. disheartening to see her suddenly retire like this at the age of 26 because she found, you know, a quote-unquote real job. The kind of thing that you have to move on to if you're not an Alex Morgan or a Marta in order to actually start to build your adult life. And uh, I think she has a boyfriend, like a long-term boyfriend. She's probably starting to think about you know what to do she's got a master's degree he's got a law degree they seem like they're ready for the next phase of their life so you can't blame someone for for taking an opportunity it's like uh jasmine reeves her first year with boston she was a fantastic rookie she had a great game against portland that i'll never forget but then she got a job with amazon and you can't really say no to that that kind of opportunity even though you've just had probably one of the better rookie seasons in the league so I get it. I think it's kind of a comment on the state of the league at the moment. Despite the deal with A&E, you know, the lifetime money coming in, team expansion is on the horizon, maybe in LA or, or with Barcelona, who knows. We're still at the point where the majority of these players cannot make a living long-term off of soccer. They can live season to season. And a lot of them, I think we need to acknowledge, the teams will cover expenses for things. Some of them, I know the breakers do, they cover expenses for things like rent or if you need to get a car. So it's not terrible if you're making 15 grand a year, but out of that 15, you don't have to pay rent. Yeah. And you have some food expenses taken care of and you've got your health insurance with the team. Um, and it's not great, but you can live season to season on that. But you're not going to have savings. You're not going to set yourself up to be you know, a real adult, I guess. So every time a player retires at the age of like 25, 26, it's just like, all right, we still have, 
the hard work to put in. So, yeah, I cried a little it's, bit. Um, and and you're right. I mean, Maddie is Maddie Evans is the players that um, leagues are built on, and we've been having this discussion in the W League about what we do about um, pay a rem and making sure that the conditions and the pay allow that um, those players who probably aren't going to make the national team but are really important to the level and the quality of your uh, league to allow those players who probably are going to push onto the national team to have a decent competition week in and week out. And they are so crucial that they can survive and that they can continue to play the game because, you know, the, the quality of the league going downhill really does affect the national team in a big way. FIFPRO in the week um, had a women's football symposium and they put out their um, working conditions employment report and it was, you know, 21%, almost 22% of players quit between that 24 and 28 age group. And you're right, a lot of the time it's because it gets to the point where you're 26 or you're 27 and you have to go out and quote, unquote, you know, get a life and get a real job. And that's where we've got to be able to um, sort that out because that's the age group that you want your players to be for you to be able to win championships, be that at club level or be that at national team level. And then, you know, Maddie was just a personal favorite because she she played so hard for Boston week in and week out. And I just have a soft spot for those players. They're never going to be national team players. They're going to have big endorsement money. So they're literally doing it because they love the game so much they couldn't mm-hmm. imagine doing something else at the moment for the living. So that's that's always something that I emotionally connect to. Um, and, the, you know, every team has players like that. Although as as much as I enjoy the sentiment, I do eventually want them to be like, I, I want there to be players who are like, yeah, I'm just doing this for the money. Eventually I want it to be economically <laughs> viable, like, right? So Yeah, yeah. And that's when we know we've made it as mm-hmm. a sport. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's really tough, you know, to see that 60%, that's 60%. In fact, it's, I think it's a little 68% of female footballers quit before the age of 22. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. Um, a sport can't continue to grow if that's where um, we're at and we, we, we do need to address it and, on a personal level, as you said, I've met so many wonderful women who um, have done it as long as they can ba- basically hold out. And it, it means, you know, we have that problem where the sport is going to be forever young if we if we don't change that. Um, so it's, it's an NWSL issue. It's a W League issue. It's a worldwide women's issue. And um, we it, it's something that we need to continue to keep in the forefront. But in saying that, Maddie played for Brisbane Raw this um, last W League season and I was lucky enough to be able to meet her and say hello and she's just seemed like the loveliest person and it's the nice people that make their clubs. And as you said, that makes them emotional emotional um, connection for a lot of fans and they're the players that you go out and see because they're the ones that are like you and and could have been like you except for you know that whole football ability that they do have but they do they do make the whole experience really special yeah so the final game of the weekend uh for sunday anyway was washington spirit 2 boston breakers 2 
And this was a weird game <laughs> because both teams are dealing with injuries right now. And this was a game where either team could have easily won and neither one did. Mischance one end, mischance the other. Although the mischance of the other from Rosie White, I think, was a little bit worse. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it was still daytime so I could yell at my computer and not get a noise complaint from my neighbors or my other roommates. <laughs> oh, wow. Football. Just, yeah. It does that to you. So but it's I, kind of, um, it's kind of, uh, um, symbolic of these two team seasons, really. You know, missed chances where they should have picked up points um, are littered throughout their season. Spirit are a team that have, I think, done as well as they can, given the circumstances, given the personnel they lost both in the offseason and due to injury during the season, right? They they lost Cornerstone and Joanna Loman early on through ACL. That was cruel. Um, and they've had other people out. Uh, Lena Sigvardson Jensen is out with ACL, too, from the Euros. The Euros wrecked a lot of Francisco. people. Francisco. Ordega's yeah, Francisco out. Ordega's um, they just recently got back Caprice Didasco because her ACL was done last season in the NWSL Championship. So I think they've, you know, they're still, I want to say, ninth on the table because their gold differential is still worse than Boston's. But I think they've done what they can with what they have mostly. And bringing in Mal Pugh has actually, you know, been a nice little booster them i don't think they're making playoffs but they're a team that can perform better than what paper suggests i think i mean they're also a team i think that they've got something to build on for next season and i feel like the same with boston boston had such a positive start that i feel like um they should have been doing a bit better this season but again it's that whole idea of moving parts i mean look at all the number of new players that are in this this lineup this year and uh, it's that whole thing of you can have one or two changes which is great but too many moving parts again and you're not too sure where the actual problem is and how to fix that also rose lavelle so many of boston's plans i think rotated around rose lavelle and i don't know if i'll ever in my lifetime forgive joel ellis for playing her in that second friendly and then she pulls up and gets injured and has now been out for months it's we're at least another yeah. week away from seeing her and she won't be playing full 90s. I don't know where Boston would be if we had Rose Lavelle. I don't think we'd be sitting at I think we now have 14 goals on the season, including the two tonight. I don't think we'd only have 14 goals over the course of the season by now. You know, I just I'm mm, okay, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jill. Thanks. <sighs> okay. Yeah, well, I think that I think uh, Seattle might um, be in that same scenario. Oh, with Megan Rapino, Like, fuck yeah. me. Yeah. It's so cruel yeah. that that happens when she's in the hottest form of the year. Like, oh. yep. <sighs> Again, with with uh, Rose Lavelle was just starting to show what she could do, and Pino definitely showing what she can do. So, um, yeah, international breaks are just a killer for teams. What was that again about wanting Australia to schedule as many games as the United States does? Look, I'm cool with that just as long as – see, but the difference is we rotate our team. <laughs> oh, you do roster management. Okay. Yeah. All right. Like, well. you know, the first game against the USA, we had one squad, and then the second game we had, like, eight team changes and nine positional changes, and then the third game we had a whole different team. So I think there was only one player that played 
three 90-minute games or close to or not even – yeah, so Sam Kerr played the most minutes throughout that whole tournament. Hmm. We're kind of recording at a weird spot. Um, we're right in the middle of the NWSL weekend, but that's what happens when Anne lives in the future in Australia. So uh, your introduction Hi to from the future. NWSL score predictions is going to be kind of a gentler introduction. You won't have to do a full weekend. We'll just do some predictions for Sunday, and that's two games. Houston Dash playing FCKC at home, and Seattle Rain playing North Carolina Courage in Seattle. So first score prediction, Houston versus KC. They're playing at BBVA. What do you got? Uh, I got Houston. I just think um, it's a bad season for FCKC. And then, yeah, throw in the midweek game and, yeah, I'm going to go with a a better rested Houston and I think um, they're going to bounce back at home. You got to give me an exact number. Oh, what? That's how we do you it. You tell me this. You, you've listened to the podcast before. You've listened to the podcast know, before, but I, right? But I'm a guest. I'm a guest. Yeah, so? Uh, okay. okay. Um, uh, I'm going to go 2 nil For Houston. I'm going to say... Th- ooh. I mean, you're right. KC just played thursday and they lost to north carolina now they're traveling to houston it's not the biggest jump fck uh, kc to houston but it's still travel i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with you two nothing for houston no two one for houston i think kc will get one okay okay so so seattle versus north carolina i'll go first with this one because you went first with the last one that's how we gab and i do we switch off so seattle's at home North Carolina just played as well on Thursday, so Seattle's much more rested. And North Carolina to Seattle is a much longer flight, uh, but Seattle just lost Megan Rapino, and they so much relies on her. They they got Fishlock back though, so at least that's not going to be the worst thing in the world for them. I'm gonna say two to one for North Carolina. Ooh, I'm going North Carolina as well for all of the reasons you just articulated, but I think it will be a lot tighter. I think it will be a 1-0 to North Carolina. They oh. seem to like those 1-0 results um, okay. in Carolina. Okay. They, just, they do just enough. Uh, all right. All right. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So thank you for filling in on such short notice on the show. A little international flavor for our guests that we don't normally get because – you're some kind of like a uh, freak who just knows all the things about non-American football. I have no life, Stephanie. I have no life. That's what you're trying to get at. I didn't say you have no life. I mean, football can be your life. I've said it before. Like, sure. I don't need lifetime companionship that rewards me with like <laughs> love and nourishment. I have soccer. Yeah, that rewards me with pain and tears literal tears. occasionally bleating bleating moments of joy literal pain i'm very clumsy and i've uh, hurt myself in whatever stadium boston breakers play in over the years a lot <laughs> i actually have a scar on my leg from where i ran into one of the bleachers a couple of years ago and i just like bled all over the stadium so so you've you've actually bled blood for the breakers yes i have they made me bleed my own blood 